HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. Welcome to the How to Hunt Deer podcast. This podcast series was designed to educate those who are interested in becoming deer hunters. We cover a variety of topics that will help you become more confident and comfortable in the field while hunting deer. In this episode of the How to Hunt Deer podcast, I talk with Alabama big buck killing machine Michael Perry about how he uses maps when scouting for deer. Michael has had great success killing above average deer on heavily pressured public land in unforgiving terrain. Just last season, he was fortunate enough to connect on the Alabama muzzleloader record, a 195 and 6 eighths inch bruiser. Michael's approach to using maps to scout for whitetails is quite different than many of the others that we've talked to during this series on using maps to scout. Rather than starting with a map and picking a likely whitetail hotspot, Michael picks hard to reach sections of his favorite public spots and puts boots on the ground right away. Once he finds promising sign, then the maps come out as he begins to ask the question, why is that deer here? While this may sound like an old school approach to using mapping apps, Michael's success shows it can hold its own as a tried and true method. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. All right, joining me for this episode of the How to Hunt Deer podcast, I've got a legend from Alabama, Mr. Michael Perry. What's going on, Michael? Hey, how you doing, man? I appreciate you coming. Hey, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you taking some time out of your uh, out of your weekend to come on and and uh, talk to us for a little bit. Why don't you, um, to kick things off, why don't you tell us about a bit about yourself and the place where you hunt? All right. Uh, well, my name is Michael Perry, like you said, and I'm from the northern part of Alabama. For, I guess you're going to have a broad range of listeners. So I live in the northern part of Alabama. I'm a, a plant worker, a chemical plant. Been doing it for 25 years. As of coming up June 30th, and uh, I've been 57. Uh, I was in the military for about five years. I, I grew up in, on a, like a small little 20 acre, you know, like hobby farm doing close to a, like a lake system, doing some trapping and, and squirrel hunting and stuff like that. And then later on going deer hunting with my dad and them and his buddies. And then from that going on to what I'm doing now, but I'm hunting some uh, different public lands in Alabama, strictly public land hunting. I can hunt four kind of main areas I kind of chased a rut we have a one man there that the rut kind of starts around the middle of November and, and uh, they, they really get up on their feet probably around Halloween and after that till like the middle of December then we'll go to some different public lands and, and, and chase chase the rut we got a the first man area like we hunt is a, a kind of a mountainous hilly terrain it goes from say zero sea level to 1100 1200 feet above sea level and then the other places are kind of got some a lot more swamps and cutovers and just just different types of training habitat that we hunt. We just adjust and you know pretty successful and then really enjoy it. So I'm, I'm glad, like I said, I'm glad to be on your podcast and appreciate your interest. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm a I'm originally from Alabama and um, you're a you're a really humble guy, but you're a bit of a legend in uh in the state of alabama you've had quite a bit of success why don't you why don't you tell us a little bit about uh about your hunting success over the last couple of years uh, i've been pretty fortunate you know i can i can claim this deer i'll talk about him in a minute because i'm i hate to claim it but i have to claim it because i kind of knew what i thought was going to happen and it ended up happening and it ended up happening maybe too quick but uh i didn't really get too serious in the antlers because my dad and when my dad and them hunted they just wanted to hunt deer so then if they if they could go somewhere and shoot a doe or whatever they they would go on muzzleloader hunts and uh, either sex hunts and uh so that's the way i learned to hunt and most of the time then you just you just put where daddy put you so later on my brother killed a uh 180 inch deer on some public land and i was like oh, oh my you know that's 
that whole I, I opened our minds up to a whole different thing about deer hunting. So you said your brother so killed kinda, that one. Yeah, he killed that okay. one in uh, 1998. I think what it was. Wow. So it was like December 26th, 180 inch. You know, and I, and I had, that thing had everything. It had which 18 inch spread. It's not a huge spread, but it's a good spread. It had a big old like eight inch drop time, bunch of stickers and stuff. Just a beautiful buck. Just. That totally changed my mindset and my brother's mindset. And it seems like, oh, I said, we're going to have to, you know, start looking and doing something a little bit different because he, they just found some fresh sign and he found a scrape that had like foaming urine in it and it was, was hot sign basically after rain and he, he climbed up and ended up killing it within just, a, I don't know, I'm going to say less than an hour anyway. But, uh, so that changed our mindset. And then they had, then we found out it got scored for a record, but like, hey, they got a record for, for these things. We didn't know anything about it. So we're going to start hunting a little bit. So I didn't kill my first decent deer until I was 31. I killed a, a good nine point. Like I said, I'm 57. So and then I just kept after it until it took me till he killed it in like say, 98. And it took me to like 2005. I killed a big one with a gun. It scored 158 inches. Boom, or a, we use Buckmasters down here scoring system. They use all the inches. So he's a big old 10 point, just a beautiful buck, 13 inch G2s. Then um, I, I started bow hunting. I don't think I killed my first bow deer until I was 33 or something. Does and then I killed a six point or something. But then I really want to try to kill one with Mike Pope and Young, but it took until I think three or four years ago I killed one that scored 142. Made Pope and Young, big old his 21 and a half inch inside spread, just a big, beautiful bug. My madness, right there, that was my life goal to kill one to be Pope and Young. So then uh, the same year, I got a picture of a buck that has a bunch of non typical looking points, probably scored maybe 140s. He just he was still younger, he's like four years old, and the pines are cool. But the next year, I, I was going to spend some time hunting, but I, I forgot to. To put him there that in March he was still carrying his horns and he looked sick and I showed it to a biologist and we said well no he might he might live and he might not but anyway the next season I got him back on camera and he he recovered but he didn't have all the stickers he just had a couple of splits but he still was about like he's made by 160 so I, I hunted him a decent amount and missed him by one day one day he come by daylight chasing some does or following some does around like nine o'clock in the morning and I was, they didn't have the gun hunt then I was on the other side bow hunting or something but anyway so I was, had a plan this year you know if he's still alive and I'm pretty sure nobody touched him so I bought a crossbow I said come on and leave get off I said and I knew that all the daylight pictures he had in them couple of years around November the first two or three weeks in November he was he was comfortable and he'd walk around in daylight some so they have a muzzleloader hunt it's the first five days of November. And then after that, you can bow hunt off and on in between gun hunts. So I bought a crossbow. When them leaves got off, I was going to, well, I'll try to get him with a crossbow. But my goal was to try to get him with a muzzleloader. I was going to tote muzzleloader all year on all the gun hunts and try to put a deer in the record butt with a muzzleloader. That would give me a, like a trifecta or whatever you call it, a grand slam or something. So I was going to, I said, I think I can do it. But, and I was going to wait till November to hunt this guy because I knew. If he was going to walk daylight, it would be then. So I stayed away from there. Then the first four days of them motor hunts, I had to work. So me and my wife went the, the next day, and I set her up on a, a ridge, say, three-quarter of a mile in. Then I went another half a mile to the area where I was hoping it was going to be daylight. And then around 9.30 or so, a, a younger buck come through about 20 yards from him. Then... About 10 minutes later, I caught movement to my right and seen the big old beam on his, his left side and a just thick mass looking, and I just knew it was a big deer, and he stepped behind a tree just, just in a blink of an eye. I eased around with the muzzle and had him in the scope, and all I could see was his rear end. It seemed like he stood there forever. And then uh, he stepped out. As soon as he stepped out, I had to cross around and I shot and seen the white flag go up like he mule kicked and run off, and I thought I heard a, a good crash within a little bit. But, you know, if you don't see them go down, I, I wasn't going to mess with them for an hour, and it was green. It was real green for, you know, first week of November. So I waited and ended up having to climb down after 30 minutes. I ended up knocking a bottle off and making a bunch of racket. But anyway, I went down there to 
where I thought I seen him go off at, couldn't couldn't find him, didn't see any blood. So I come back, done a little bit of zigzagging to so I found actually where I hit him at, and found some blood and trailed it about twenty thirty yards. And he started running into some trees. He knocked bark off of two trees before he poor friend ended up finding him past and and I seen his laying there with his rack sticking up and then humongous and I was like tears started coming and started talking to God and what up there and that thing was bigger than anything I'd ever imagined but I was time looking at him I'm thinking he's one seventies, you know, and but he was just big mass, didn't have a wide spread, but he's a huge body, just a big old tank of a deer and then uh, like I said, I spent time with him for a little for a little while and I was supposed to meet my wife and pick her up around seven thirty or so. I was gonna hunt till eleven so I'm gonna field dressed him, then I drug him for an hour because I knew I was gonna have to help. So I drug him up a hill for an hour to get him away from my stand. Where when I got people to come help me, they wouldn't know exactly where I was at. But then got up there to her, and I was all bloodied up. I was so excited, had blood all over me, and then uh, got her, and we got some people come help. But he ended up grossing. It was eight. I counted fourteen points. You're supposed to do a game check, check them in on on your phone. I counted 14 points. They counted 19 at checking stations. They ended up being an 18 point score at 195 and 6 8 on the gross. So he was a whopper. So six, six inch. I mean, just to have a 15 and 8 inch inside spread, six inch bases, 20, almost 25 inch beans. But he was just 14, almost, he had 14 inch G2s. And he just, he was a tank of a deer. And just uh, that made my, hunting career basically so he's he's just he's a whopper so i've had a a pretty good last three or four years so, so i feel i think now i've killed two 140s and then the 137 and the 158 and then the, the 196 so wow so it's not that's not too bad for Portland, alabama so <laughs> well I want to 30, jump. You know, start at thirty-one. So. Yeah, I, I want to jump into that piece a little bit. I mean, a hundred ninety-five inch deer is huge anywhere you go. Like it doesn't matter, right? Like right. no matter where you go in the country, you go to a game farm, and you know a high fence, you know whitetail farm basically, and a hundred ninety-five mm-hmm. inch deer is still a giant deer. Right. Um, but you're you're not killing that deer in Iowa. You're not killing that deer in wisconsin you're not killing that deer in illinois or kansas you're killing that deer in alabama it is far and a a far beyond what would be an average deer for your area what would what would an average deer be for the area that you're 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 hunting because i mean you're you're talking about killing 140s 150 and a and a 196 in an area where rack sizes aren't you know a 140 is not normal right the I've killed a 140 or bigger on, on two different management areas, which one of them is, is, is on down toward the middle of the state, and, then, and that's where my brother killed that 180. But the rest of them is on the one in the northern part of Alabama. And it, it's had a – I know for sure there's been three 200 inches took off of it since the 70s. But, you know, they're, they're few and far between, but it has the potential to do that. The state record archery buck – has come from there, and it's, I think it's, I won't say it's around 230, 230 inches or something like that. Just a gnarly looking, moosey looking deer. So, but it has potential. Alabama's kind of overlooked a little bit. So, I mean, I think mine was the biggest deer killed this year in Alabama. I haven't heard of one bigger that was, that was one in the 180s that was killed in Muslover. So, last year there was a 199, I think it was killed in Jefferson County. So, but we're, I mean, we've got them in Alabama, doesn't it? But it, as far as uh, I, I, my goal was a three and a half year old deer, and it, it might be a hundred inch, it might be a, a one twenty. I don't, I don't specifically, specifically wait for a monster one. We can kill three bucks, so and we love the meat. So and then, like I say, public land, it, it just depends on what you want to do. I mean, I don't have any problem with people. I mean, I've, I've shot a many a spike, so I think I've killed 78, 79 bucks. I've got every horn that I've ever took, and I think 34 of them is eight points or bigger now since, and I've done that since I was 31, so that's not too bad, but, you know, a lot of them is 100, 110 inch deer, so we yeah. probably, my wife, my wife has killed three eight points, 
one with the molar and one with the rifle that are 115 inch deer, very nice deer. So, so we've we've done pretty good. She's actually killed a buck with four different weapons, more than more weapons than me. She's killed one with a crossbow, a regular bow, a molar and a rifle. So wow. on public land, so. So we're we're hard we're hard after it. we we've learned <laughs> uh, the hard way right kind of you know so but we're like I say we're hard after it. we we love the hunting and the outdoors so we even got we used to do a bunch of camp camping now we we pull a camper around and and set up a while to make it more comfortable for, for us so, but we really enjoy it so yeah tell me what what would an average buck be like an average three and a half year old in your area let's say what what do you think he'd score average three and a half year old at this one area is be 110 maybe so 110 inch maybe a one yeah 110 to, a good one would be 120 you gotta the my bigger ones are all been aged four and a half and older so the this one was six and a half so I killed one uh, last year that was six and a half plus, and he, he he'll score about one fifteen, just a big old seven point. He was the biggest body deer that I've ever killed last year. He weighed two oh four, and then this year I beat that. So it, not all of them have big racks. So like the ball just said, he said eighty percent of the deer or ninety percent of the deer in, in the state of Alabama could live to be fifty years old, and they wouldn't have a hundred ninety inch rack. So it's just <laughs> it takes perfect conditions. And and one thing being on this was we've had four years four years of wet springs and wet summers with mild winters. So their bodies were in real good shape before it come time for them to start growing the racks. So they had, you know, they were pretty much most of the stuff they eat extra went to their racks. So they grew, grew good racks. So we had, uh, there was two, uh, there was some other deer killed. It was a, it was an eight point that scored 140 something and then a 10 point that's 150s and a couple more 140s that were killed in the same piece of public so i mean it was, it was a great year so but it was uh it's 92,000 i think 92,000 acre piece of public and there was 91 but killed i think so that's you know about one per thousand acres so that's that, that's different than most places in the state so it's a lot lower than deer density so yeah i was gonna see if you could speak to that for just a little bit because the the place where you're hunting uh not only you know isn't known well it's known to have the potential for some real trophy deer, but right. you know, an average buck isn't going to be anything that knocks your socks no. off, but it's also nope. known for two other things. One being extremely rugged, uh, yep. you know, pretty tough area to hunt and having real low deer densities. So talk to me about how you found success given those factors. Yeah, like I say, it's, it's, it's mainly big woods type. It's, they have a few cutovers and stuff like that, but the access is, is very limited. They don't allow any kind of four-wheelers. There's a lot of gates going to green fields. There's, there's some green fields that's three miles away from the road, some closer, uh, but it's, it's it's rugged, hilly, rocky blowdowns because like they don't do very little timber management, so you have a lot of some, some beetle kills and stuff like that. So it's real nasty, and there's a lot of isolated areas. There's, there's some dark, deep hollows that's got hemlock trees and, uh, Mount Laurel bushes and stuff like that. So the deer, especially more like this year, we have a, we had a huge mass crop. So the deer don't even they could a buck could get up and walk 15 foot and get all acres he wanted and lay back down the rest of the day. So it's it's just a lot tougher than than most of the other areas because of, they can they can get away from people. They know where to go and the people most of your people are not going to go that far because it's just too tough to get back there and it's it's too hard to get out of I've drug one out. For, it took me and another guy or me and my dad five and a half hours to get one of them out one time to 158. It took five and a half hours for me and him to get him out. And so my wife there, it took an hour to to go back to the truck, get the cart, hour back with the cart, an hour to get the deer to the cart, and then hour and a half back out, you know, rolling it out on the cart. So it's just, it's a tougher area. The deer like I say, way less density than anywhere else. And you just, you got to figure out for travel, how they travel and stuff like that. So it's, it's just a whole different hunt. And when we go down South, if, if you don't see a deer on today, you'll see, you'll see, might see 15 tomorrow where I don't think I've ever seen no more than eight or nine in one time at this place. But I've sat in one tree for seven days in a row from daylight to dark and I see a, not see a deer. 
and then go to the next week, and you're going to see five or six. Maybe it, it, it's just they they can they can roam, say several miles. The deer I killed two years ago with the bow, a guy had him on camera four miles away, and then wow. uh, the deer, the big eight point that was killed this year, that guy squares up and down, and they got pictures of it. It's eight. I think it said eight or nine miles two days before the guy killed it. So, Man, so that thing was moving. He must have got after a doe or just took off hunting does or something. But it, they can go a, a, a lot farther than than most of your southern deer because there's, there's so many does or whatever. Our doe groups are, are spread out pretty good. So they just they stay on the go checking doe groups. A buck may it might take a buck five days to make a make a loop of of what groups of does he's checking. So it's it's tougher. You got to be a lot more patient, and a lot of people don't have that patience. If you come going there to see deer, you're going to the wrong place. So, but you can see a deer that's a you know a lifetime buck. So. Yeah. Well, so I, I'm doing a little bit of a series here on this uh, on this podcast. Uh, we've been talking a good bit about map scouting, and mm-hmm. I wanted to have you on because I think your perspective is going to be a little bit different. Number one, you're from the South, from my home state of Alabama. Number two. Um, I think your approach to using maps and your experience with map scouting is probably a little bit different. Uh, it's mm-hmm. kind of a given these days, especially in the hunting media world that everyone is all about the maps all the time. And, uh, you know, certainly I, I fall into that camp. I love, love looking at maps, but, uh, you know, you've been very, very successful. So I'm curious how much has map scouting played into your success? It has helped, but like like I said, when we started hunting, like me and my brother, you just wherever your dad, where dad put us, so we're starting till later on. Then when we started saying we're going to try to trophy buck hunt or bigger buck hunt, we would just take a imaginary map with just a paper map. This before Onyx or anything like that, before they could afford Onyx or anything. So we would just take the paper maps and and look and see where they had the green fields marked, and we would just go somewhere and. and in between where nobody else is parking and just take all walking and, and walk out places going to them food plots and then just trying to take notes in your mental notes of where the food plots is at, what kind of habitat and drain is in there and, and try to make a plan to hunt. Then later on now I bought Onyx. I think it, was, it used to be a different company before Onyx was going to Wyoming or somewhere. But anyway, I bought some kind of chips to do it with a handheld GPS and still didn't, actually map scout we just went somewhere and had a handheld and just kind of looking at it and that's basically what i do now because we just got where i live we just got internet in our house last month so to look at on big screen map let's say onyx on a 12 inch screen or bigger i can just now start doing that so the way we learned was is we just took out walking and i had onyx have a hard map saved on my phone and would take off and just mark different habitat changes you know, certain, you know, rubs, scrapes, and stuff like that. So the biggest thing that I do now is, say, right now, this time of year, postseason scouting, that's my, that's more I make all my plans off of is, is right now. As I take off with my phone that's got Onyx on it, take off, find me and pick me out a mile and a half here, or if I'm doing something new, say a mile and a half here, and just take off walking, and I walk it on the hilly places, you got to make level changes because when I hunt, here in the mornings, I'm going to stay higher because of the way that I've learned over the years that the wind's too unpredictable. If you go to the bottom, it just, it just ricochets and the thermals can get you and stuff like that. So to find sign, you, you know, most of your sign, more say doe sign or, or scrapes and stuff like it are generally going to be on the bottoms, but your the areas that bucks use most of the time to actually hunt is for me, it's going to be higher. So I start out by walking creeks and there are changes or in some places you just walk some uh, logging roads that are where you can find tracks. Tracks is, is what I key off of as my main thing. Then looking for scrapes, rubs, because during postseason when big woods country, the leaves are off so you can see where the pines are at or cedars or, or laurels or, you know, different kind of habitat edges or habitat inside of a habitat or whatever and look for the buck sign you know, old scrapes and old rubs and faint trails and the doe trails will be worn pretty good. So, and I, I start doing that. I just, I just take out on X, 
walk, you know, mark red oaks, white oaks, any kind of different kind of food source, but uh, honeysuckles, the creek crossings where more things come together. So some people call them thermal hubs, crow's foot or, or, or junctions or whatever you want to call them. But I try to put the odds in my favor, knowing what the food plot is at, suspected bedding areas, you go walking ridges with a blowdown dread or whatever, pay attention to, to what's on the south side because when it does get cold, north winds or whatever, the, the does and, and stuff like that, they like bedding more than when the sun pops up. It's going to be kind of warm on them. They might be, say, a sage point or, or a blowdown point where there's not many, as many trees from something, beetles or storms and blow trees down, just anything like that where I can just kind of learn the habitat of where the deer is at then try to make a plan to, to say, early season, I'll, I'll I'll try to hunt closer to bed nears for a specific buck, but once it gets close to pre-rut, I'm hunting travel corridors, pink points, upper areas. But um, actually, from like I say, I just using my phone as the map. I don't get, I don't now. I'll probably start since I've got it where I can get a computer on the internet. I can look at a bigger map and get a general idea farther out than versus having a hard copy saved on my phone because there's no internet signal in this area. So I have to save a hard copy on my phone to actually know exactly what I'm looking at while I'm out walking around. So yeah, but back in the old days, we didn't have anything like that. And I've spent the night before in the woods, not having something like that get lost. So, but, but not afraid of it. So we just, like I say, we just take off walking. We walk six miles one day, two days later, we walk five, two days later, we walk four. So, Trying to find sheds, you know, sheds is a big, big thing with me. If you can find a shed this time of the year in the woods, that gives you a starting point or uh, especially if it's a big shed or if you find big tracks right now, that's a starting point. So then you can, you know, go back and look at your map and try to see why he's coming that way or coming from or, or whatever and then start putting the plan together. But that's basically our map thing. We're just now getting where I can use something like that where all these younger guys get on there and they're looking thermal hubs and uh, level chains and all that. They've already got a spot picked out before they go and where I just pick out a mile and a half square area and just take off and, and try to do my scout. So yeah, and I, I if, think... I went to, if I went to a new place, I guess I, I would not try to do the newer style and just look at it and try to find where something where more more things point to one area, I guess you could kind of say. Yeah. Support is a starting point. I think that I think that we've got a lot to learn though from that old style. And you know, I, I gotta say first of all, if if somebody's listening to this and they've never seen uh state of Alabama uh wildlife mer- management area map, uh they should go look at one of those because there's not a whole <laughs> lot to go on. Uh, oh, there's nothing there, but just it, it just marks shows where the green fields are. Most of them, not all of them, have all the green fields on there, and then it's just the, where the roads are at, and then the the what's manned there, and then where where it bumps into private land. That's it. And that's all you got to go off of. Yeah, you're lucky if all so, the roads are on it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're, not just, they're just a general map. So I just you know when you had a compass and you just took off, and then we have left a truck somewhere on a different road, and then you know you just park one place bail off and go walking and, and hopefully you'll hit that other road in four or five hours after you're scouting and then walk to it truck and come back and get the other one. We've done that. So it's, it's just the old school way that we learned how to do it. You didn't, we didn't have the new technology now. Definitely boy, if I could have found a podcast back in them days, that would have been, you know, a little bit of help for sure. So <laughs> yeah, hopefully we can, uh, we can kind of shorten up that learning curve a little bit. I remember being a kid and, <laughs> carrying around those management area maps and, you know, you got to sign it when you get there. So, and keep that in your pocket so that you're agreeing Mm -hmm. to the rules for the day or whatever. And, um, you know, it was an adventure. I mean, I remember, you know, as a young teenage guy driving around on those places, trying to figure out, okay, is this that road? No, wait, the map shows there's only (laughs) one road here, but there's three, you know, which, which is that road. And, uh, yeah, trying to piece it all together. But I, I think we have a lot to learn though. Um, from a heavy dependence on maps these days. You know, you kind of talked about that as kind of the newer style. And, and I think there's a ton of value that having maps um, provides us with, right? Like it's really good to be able to look at a big picture and say, okay, all these things are coming together at this one spot. So that's where I'm going to go. 
But I think we can learn a lot from what you're saying too, in that I, I take a spot and and I'm putting boots on the ground and you're kind of doing a much more of a uh, boots on the ground map scouting at the same exact time. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not picking the spot before you go in, but you're picking an area and then marking everything that you find in that area. Is it, is there anything that you're doing to try to stay efficient with that? And I, I think that's a lot of what drives guys to do, uh, to go heavy on the whole map scouting thing is they want to be as efficient as possible whenever they get into the woods. Are you doing anything to try to be more efficient or are you just like, Hey, scouting takes time and that's how I roll. Yeah. Scouting takes time. I don't, I don't for a, for a, for a bigger buck efficient, probably not going to get it because they like, I don't like up North and different places where they're, go to more ag fields or whatever where here our deer are more browsers even if it's a big acorn deer that they, you're, they, they can just walk and browse and then when they get somewhere they feel safe they just go up to a higher point to bed the bucks especially a buck don't have to bed way up like our bucks is they want a, a strategic advantage most of the time when they're bedding where they, they can bed on a, like a little shelf or that's covered in laurel bushes 15 foot above a, a creek or a, on or above any kind of terrain and have 500 foot up above them. It's just they want some kind of advantage, but they can get this advantage where I hunt at. And so if I'm hunting a mile and a half square block, they can get that advantage in 212 places. I mean, it's just, it just depends on the year, if, how the acorns are. If it's if it stays good and green like we are now, but like I say, they can just browse around, and and the buck don't have to. He don't have to have a specific bedding place. He wants an advantage when he beds, but it's not going to be the same place every day. It might not be the same place every week. It's just you just got to find. I'm looking for a track to find out to get an idea where he's at. Then I start walking, and you'll hear me say this a thousand times, and people probably get tired of it. Creek crossings and drainage crossings is 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 my is my mainstay where I start at and where I look at. And I'm trying to find where they're crossing, why they're crossing, and what's going to, what kind of terrain feature, edge, or habitat feature is going to push them closer to me, whether I'm bow hunting or gun hunting. I always set up kind of close because I like to bow hunt quite a bit. But, so it, it's, it's trying to document all that and keep up with it. And then, then in cameras, trail cameras now is, you know, we used to not have them the last seven, eight years. I've, I've, I've spent a little bit more time with them, but they can be some people's downfall. My, this, this buck that I killed, I had two pictures of him this year and I didn't know it until after I killed him. And one of them, I didn't know until a week ago. Me and my wife went and pulled a camera card that was three miles out, whatever. It'd been out since July and I didn't pull it till February. And he'd come by in the daylight. Then another camera that I had that was close to where I was hunting him at, he'd come by at night, one night, October 17th, I think that's what it was, and I killed him the November 5th. So, and then I had him, in, like I said, that other camera was in September on daylight. So I had no other pictures of him. And then, but these cameras, like I say, I don't mess with them. I put them out in travel corridors or some people, I heard somebody, a podcast where a guy calls them flow areas, and it's kind of similar. A buck generally don't stay on the, specific trail he just but he uses edges and stuff but he might be 30 yards like this buck that I killed he was following another buck but he was 30 yards lower in the train than other bucks they just don't they don't use trail like those do they just but they use it trains an advantage while they're while they're traveling where it's using thermals in the morning coming up and when they bed generally they're going to bed like you hear most people say where the thermal's coming up to them, they got a hard background behind them, and then the wind's coming over their back. So they're we're, and they're kind of covered where they they got a way to escape and stuff. So that's 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 my theory behind it. So yeah, these uh, I, I want to circle back to that that buck you're talking about there. How close together were these three pictures you got of this deer? Well, they, they were. Um, I was actual. From the cameras or from time frame? Well, yeah, from from the cameras. So were, were the cameras in the same area year after year, or were they taking you know half mile apart? Or oh, the the one camera that I got him every year was the same camera. Same it, camera. Was, okay. Right. Yeah, it was. The other camera was a half a mile away, and I just put that camera out last last uh, July. So it was it was just a kind of a different little pinch. 
because I'll, I'll move them around and trying to find different funnels and stuff. Like I said, we can't use any kind of bait or anything. So if I'm going to put a camera somewhere, it's going to be somewhere I can hunt. It, and I how to put it where deer can't see it or won't notice it or whatever. But I, 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 the benefit I want out of it is for I can hunt that spot. So, and I'm but I'm, most of the time if I'm not going to check the camera after season. It just gives me an idea of what happened during the rut stuff like that to give me an idea for the next season. So it kind of plays into my into my thought process or my planning. So, but yeah, I had three pictures of him last year. The year before, I had three or four. The first the time that I started that I got pictures of him, I had like five or six pictures of him that year. But all I want to know on a buck, on any kind of buck that I'm going to hunt, if he's there, and then if he's hard horn in the in the picture, then that gives me some confidence of a plan to make a plan to hunt. You know, velvet. You know, sometimes when they get their velvet off, they can move. Most of the time, they will move half a mile to a mile, but you know that that's not going to give you a good perspective into hunting that spot. But hard horn, if I can get one hard horn picture, that gives you know it gives me some confidence on that on that area. So that's what I'm looking for is a big old track, and if I can get a hard horn picture, and that gives me some confidence and try to make a plan. So yeah, at least some confidence he's going to come through there at some point in the season. Yeah, yeah. And, it might, and most of the time, if you get a big buck, if he's walking through. On camera, and you get him hard horn in daylight. For some, I mean, he's just walking through. That's, I mean, he's there for a reason. So it's not just happenstance. So, so you keep that in your mind. So it might be he only do that three times during hunting season, but I mean, that's better than no time. So <laughs> <laughs> I love that he may, he might only do it three times, but it's better than no yeah. times. And you right. know, I, I tell you, uh, all you need, all you need is one time. That's right. That's right. You know, hunting here where I'm at, where I'm at now, uh, with the, the, the number, the, sort of the, the pattern ability, I guess, of some of the deer and, uh, the consistency with which, you know, a travel corridor is used, you know, daily, you know, uh, catching right. deer every single day, but, yeah. but having grown up in Alabama and just knowing that that's just not the reality, especially for low deer density areas, you know, a lot of folks, you know, even here up in Northern Wisconsin and folks uh, out East with some of the big woods out like PA and stuff, uh, you know, those deer are making circuits kind of like you've alluded to, and they may come through there every six, seven, eight, nine days. Right. You know, yeah, and I've only, and I've only killed three deer. I think that I've had a camera picture of that I had the picture. So, and then it's only been one big deer. So the rest of them I didn't have, but I had pictures of other boats using the same area. And it, that was because it was during the rut or pre-rut and they were just, that was, that's a, a route that big bucks took to, to check for does or, or whatever. So I've had, uh, I'm going to say that one camera I can, uh, last year, I think I had three bucks that probably scored over 140 in a couple of weeks that come through, you know, two of them got, two of them got killed, I think, by other people. So, but I mean, I'm, I'm uh, odds. It, you know, I've hunted, uh, I grew up, you know, hunting the hard way, just hunting those, whatever. But me and my brother went through the, the steps of hunting scrapes or hunting trails or whatever, hunting creek bottoms. It took, we went through a lot of pain. Like I say, we didn't have, we didn't have technology for the, for the mapping and stuff like that. So we've done everything the hard way, you know, to figure out what actually worked out best. So now my eyes, I feel better an area where more than one big buck can come through. It's, it's going to be some kind of funnel area where, Bucks are coming through, trying to go to a doe group or check a doe group. So the chance of seeing multiple bucks is 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 better than just hunting a specific buck. You know, hunting a specific buck early season, I, I can believe in doing, and I've tried, but I've I've only done it. I've only killed a couple like that early season. Most most of my bucks are are doing something that got something to do with the pre rut or rut that I kill. So yeah. So when you're when you're out there. And, uh, you're taking, you know, a different approach with maps while you're scouting and, uh, you've sectioned off a, an area and you've mentioned that, you know, you're keying in, especially a lot on Creek crossing, Creek crossings, ditch crossings, that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. when you're, when you pull out that map, because you, you don't start with the map, you start with, with an area and you say, I'm going to search this area, right? I'm going to scout this area. Uh, and then you pull uh, the map out. When you pull that map out, are there, what are those consistent things that when you, when you pull the map out to ask the question, why is he here? Or why are these deer here? What are some of those features that uh, are, are sort of reoccurring? Well, it's going to be a relation of where, 
most of the time it's going to be in some kind of relations where I think he's traveling, checking doe bedding or, or going to where he might bed or something. It's something to do with the higher, higher, higher part of the terrain to uh, generally. So but most, like we found him, me and my wife found a big old buck bed on the second time we went. He was, he was bedding below a bluff line watching a valley and, and I guess it was a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if he was watching my doe or what, but anyway, it was just a security area that he, that he knew, that he knew about. So that just gives you a, an idea. It was a hard, hard place to get to that is something that you, I've documented on my, I save it as a marking point, you know, a buck bed that then look at the map and see there's just bluffs on, on up and then there's some more fingers and stuff like that. So that gives you kind of idea to, to have a starting point to hunt, to plan a hunt. So. Yeah. Yep, so higher higher up on the terrain. Well, the biggest reason that is for, for that is because, like I said, the, the wind and the thermals. Because most of my deer I've killed has been in the morning. I've killed a few in the evening, but most of them, is, especially the big ones, has been in the morning. I've killed a few at lunch or, I guess, up to 3 o'clock. Very few that I've killed. I don't think I've killed a deer over older than 3 past 3 o'clock in the day. But I've killed some 3-year-olds right before dark, so... But most of the time, the biggins, most of the time, them biggins, whenever they're coming out after hunting season started, they don't they don't go up out of their bed until it's dark, or it's or it's still by the time they get down. Because I, if I'm hunting in the evening, I'm gonna be hunting close to a steeper face or something where I think where I've seen tracks where they've coming down from a point or a shelf or something to access a bottom to to do their scrape checking or doe checking and stuff like that. Cause they're traveling bottoms a lot at night they'll do it some in the daytime, but it just where we hunt at. And this, this main place is, it's too hard to, for the wind. It's, it's too unpredictable and you've only got a certain amount of days. And my, I don't want the deer to know that I'm hunting him. It's like, I, like we was talking about as far as seeing them, I've, I've only seen one or two bucks that were good bucks twice in a season period. My wife had a monster one. She's seen twice in two weeks. I've never seen a monster one twice. If I, if I see a big buck, that's one time, and you better be ready and, and hope you can get a shot at him because you're more likely you're not going to see him again. So. <laughs> you got one so, shot. That's it. So. Got to make it count. Got to be prepared. So. There you go. There you go. Well, uh, I just got one more one more question for you, and that that's this. If, if you could give somebody um, one piece of scouting advice, uh, specifically as it relates to like, you know, bringing your map along with you having that map, maybe one, one key thing that you're using the map for one, one key piece of scouting advice of how you relate what you're seeing, uh, on the ground to what you're seeing on your map. What would that one piece of advice be? Well, the biggest thing is you got to be able to get to it without interfering with any other deer. That's, that's, that's the, that's the number one thing. Well, the number one thing is finding something you're interested in hunting that looks good, you know, big tracks or whatever, and a, a travel corridor that, that you can think you can get a shot or see him, but you've got to be able to get to it without, like if he, if you think he's crossing this bottom going up to a ridge to check those or where he's going to bed at, whatever, you can't come in from that bottom. You know, I, I try to, I try to come in where I'm coming over a little hill or a rise where I'm out of sight not crossing any any trails to get to there so i'll use a headlamp to go a majority of the way but whenever i start getting across the area i keep a little pin light and where it's just barely shining on the ground where i can to get to my tree and i don't want it to look like an airplane coming in or anything like that the very low impact is, is, is what i'm going to try to do so you got to have the access so that's the number one thing to me after you find the area is make sure you can get there and I, I, you know, I'm, some people go in and out different ways, but I go in and out the same way every time because I, I feel I'm, that's, I don't, I don't want to do any, leave any more scent than I have to. If I can confine it to one area, if I'm leaving any, that's going to be it. I'm, I'm going in and out the same way. Yeah. I, you know, I, I do the same, the same thing when it comes to my access. And, you know, I found that a lot of guys who hunt private land really pay a lot of attention to their access you know, especially folks that like to plant food plots and, you know, do improvement to their timber to make sure the deer are bedding in specific areas. But it, mm-hmm. it seems like guys on public maybe don't spend quite as much time focused on the, on their access. And I think a lot of that is oftentimes just because they're like, Hey, there's a hundred other guys out here. 
You know, uh-huh. who who knows where so and so walked through? Well, and if it's during a rut and you're, and you're and you're thinking maybe people will push them on it, you can you can do that. But I I, I know I can vouch for a fact. I know plenty of people that that'll walk in access and walk through green bills in the dark to go to where they're hunting at. And you know, what do you think of, could be in the green bills in the dark? <laughs> it could be there in the green bills. You're gonna run them out. So yeah, but. If you come, if you walk a bottom a long way and then, then pop up and hunt watching the same bottom, see if there was any there in that bottom and they're in the bottom a lot during the night, you, you run them out or you at least leave them scent. So it's, it's hard to, you, you know, you can control your scent to an extent, but it's hard not to come in without leave something. So. Yeah, that, that's really good. You know, I, I, I told you I had one more question, but I lied to you. I, uh, well, I, I got, I got till, I got till Monday. <laughs> so that gives Today's us roughly Friday. that gives us roughly 48 hours so uh we we got it um right. how do you how do you go about finding and choosing and planning your access then so you you found a spot that spot is dynamite you pulled up your map and you're like okay i can tell why they're here i can tell you know where i where i know they're traveling i see they're relating to this maybe a really large terrain feature uh, i know where they're coming from i know where they're headed to how do you go about picking that access? Because um, for a long time, for me especially, it was just the shortest distance to my truck. You know, whatever um, whatever got uh, me to that uh, truck the quickest. And uh, now I take it a little better. more seriously. Right. Yeah, and you're doing right. You you, you got to be able to get there, so it don't matter. I, when I find an area and think I'm going to hunt it, whatever, like right now, I find me a way to get to it. I go ahead and, and if I need to clip something, break something, we can't, you know, on, on man there, you're very limited on what you can damage. So I, and I, you can, now you can use that on it. You can leave tracks. So, but I'm, I go ahead and have me a tree picked out now. So where I can, you know, and then find me a way back to the old logging road. Or if I walk a Creek to get to a certain point where I pop over, it's just, I have my access figured out, you know, now. So, and the easiest way now with the, with the technology guys, you can just save a track. You save a track, and then you can follow it back pretty much. So you can mark your tree with a, well, maybe with a bright eye, or or however, however, what makes you feel comfortable marking area to, but you want to do it where nobody else can see it. So, but you know, I always have it figured out before ahead of time, and then a lot, a lot of people don't understand. It. I'll do some like pre-checking. You know, if you're if you're private land hunter or, or public land hunter, you got to at least make sure that they haven't cut the place. Sometimes they'll cut some timber or whatever, but I then do a do a pre-check on how the acorns are or, or the, or whatever, but before season, but I don't do very little just tromping through my hunt places period during or early season or anything. I always hunt out then in so hunt the edges first because they're not the big boy. Like I say, they're not going to get on their feet good until pre-rut. So if you screw them up early season, then that blows your chance later. So I don't, I've learned the hard way. So, I don't want to push a bedding area before. Like if you go trying to hunt where you think one's bedding in, in the morning, you're going in in the dark, and if you push him out, because 90% of the time a mature buck won't blow at you. He won't make a bunch of racket leaving. He just eases out or whatever, but he knows you're there. But, but you don't know he knows you're there, so you're you're going to be having some dry days. So I don't like doing that until maybe as, as, as later on if I have to, if I feel like I need to, but I don't want to. I just early because I don't. I want them to feel comfortable and I want them to be comfortable. I don't want them to know I'm there. So the stealth approach to me, I mean, I very very seldom do I do much calling unless it's something I see that's out and I just try to get a reaction from it, trying to get it to me. But forward blind calling, I don't do a whole lot of that. So yeah, that um, that tracking piece that you mentioned earlier, you know, now you can go ahead and, uh, with, with Onyx or something like that, mm-hmm. you can lay down a track and use that. And man, that has been yeah. huge for me, especially yeah. as, uh, you know, I, I, I told you earlier, I'm, I'm from Alabama, then moved to Louisiana and did a lot of hunting around sloughs and water all over the place. And then uh, where uh-huh. I currently hunt, it's pretty marshy and yeah. you know, you can get a little bit turned around out there pretty quick in a <laughs> cattail marsh. And, you know, all of a sudden you find open water and it's like, I don't, how do I get back to where I was? You know, uh-huh. is it, you, you know where your truck is. It's half a mile that direction. Like, you know how to get there. It's just, how do you get there without sinking over your head in water? Uh, and that's where, you know, using a tracking system or something like that on, on X can, 
can really, really come in handy. Uh, last question. I, I lied again. I got another question. Um, <laughs> when you're starting to mark stuff on your Onyx, um, are you doing anything special to try to keep your stuff organized or is it all just kind of, does yours look like uh, mine and you zoom out and it's just a big red blob? Yeah, it's part of it's a big red blob. And this year, because uh, like I've only said, I've only, I've only had it on my phone just to take two or three years now. But this year, I told my wife, I got too much red stuff. I got, so I get on there and start, because nobody's actually showed me that you can change all this stuff, the color and all that. And so I'm starting to change some of the colors where I can know what I'm looking at. Because if, if everything's red, you don't know what it's, where you mark scrape, rub parking or whatever in Greenville. So I'm, I'm starting to color code it more. So, so, but yeah, that, that, that technology is amazing now. But yeah, like, like you're talking about, it's starting to be a red, red glob. So I'm starting to change some of the stuff. So. <laughs> yeah. And I, I end up half the time I've, I mark something and I keep moving cause I'm trying to move fast and I go back and I look at the pen and I'm like, why did I mark this? What, yeah. you know, what, what was this? Was there a scrape <laughs> here? Was there a rub there? Was it a bed that I found? Was it a, a deer that I saw? Uh, was it a Turkey? I don't know. It's just and that's another thing I learned. You can actually put in a little note. Some of it you can actually take a picture. I think and save in there. You can. Some, so all that's good. Cool, but that's another thing I'll preach is more information is better than little or no information. And I keep a log book. I've, I've talked about this a bunch. I keep a journal and with all kind of stuff, especially the hunts and stuff. So it because when you start getting older, you're trying. What was that? You know, kind of remember things, and it's easier to go back through the journal and look. So. But the more information you can get, the better. Like I say, if you got plenty of time now to walk, I mean, just, I don't care how long you've hunted the land. If you hunted the land 20 years, there'll be slight changes. They'll make some adjustment. Deer changes a little bit. Some of the, you know, some of your, like I've had them uh, community scrapes, you'd be there for 10 years, and all of a sudden they're gone for some reason or another. So you, while they've moved them or what, so it's, it's kind of unknown, but they'll, they'll move them a little bit every now and then, so you might have to adjust. So, so it's always good to keep keep everything fresh and just, Good for you to get in them woods. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You can find more outdoor-themed podcasts at sportsmansnation.com on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you download your podcasts.